If you guys have your Bibles, could you please turn to Matthew 15? Matthew 15. If you have your phones, that's fine. And if you don't, I'm going to have most of the things um, up here behind us. Well, certainly the text today. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's, that's fine. You can follow along back there. Uh, Lord, I was praying. Kim was helping me think about that this morning just with the word from the Lord. So I do pray, Lord, that God, you would, you would speak through this word, and I just pray in your mercy. Um, Lord, I know we can watch football games and <laughs> baseball games and binge watch TV, um, but I also don't want to um, dilute what you have to say with unnecessary words, and so I pray you protect me from that today. Um, Father, we ask you, to be who you are to us today, which is a good father who delights in his children, who loves his sons and daughters. And when they ask him, when we ask you for food, for nourishment, you don't give us a rock or a snake. You give us good things, and the greatest of all things that you give us is the Holy Spirit of your Son, Jesus. And so I ask for all of us that we would feast on your Holy Spirit today. Protect us from just hearing words. Protect me from just saying words. Lord, by your grace and mercy, continue to let all that we do today be experiencing our Father and His heart for us and His words for us. And I pray for any here who do not know you in this room, in children's ministry classes, that your Holy Spirit would touch those hearts with conviction of their need for Jesus and conviction of His love and desire for them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two weeks, we've been looking at strength, biblically defined. Strength. We looked two weeks ago when the ladies were on a retreat at 1 Corinthians 16 and Paul's appeal, act like men, be strong. Something, as we talked about, he was saying to men and women. Last week, we looked at that famous phrase in 2 Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, I am strong. This week, I want to consider strength again, and I want to ask this question. What is the fuel for our strength? What makes us spiritually strong? In the midst of so much weakness and trial and need, where do we find courageous faith to keep walking with God, keep looking to God? Now, fundamentally, many of you would tell me strength comes from the Holy Spirit. He is the ultimate source of our strength, and you would absolutely be right about that. But, but we're not robots, right? Like, the Spirit rarely just zaps us without working in our hearts and minds and reasoning with us. He didn't give us these glorious image of God hearts and minds that think hard and feel deeply and wrestle strenuously and desire passionately and fear anxiously. 
all so that he could just bypass that when it comes to himself. The Spirit uses our hearts. He uses truth that we cling to and believe in, and we're strengthened through that truth. That's called faith, real faith. And the Spirit works through faith. And if you said faith is the fuel for our strength, you would get a 100% score on your answer sheet. I would give you a little star and a smiley face. But I want to go deeper. What, what kind of faith? Let's, let's Google zoom in further and further and ask what kind of faith. What is, what is it that particularly goes on in the hearts of the minds of people of God when they do not give up? What goes on in the hearts of God's people when they don't give in or settle or compromise or when they do, what makes them get back up? What is the fuel for courageous, enduring, lasting spiritual strength? One crucial answer. My favorite answer right now is found in our story today. And we'll read, starting in verse 21, we'll read through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. For even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. A little background on this text. Jesus has spent much time in rough conflict with the Pharisees and Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy. Now he decides it's time for a retreat. Rest with his disciples. He's going to go outside of Jewish territory and into Gentile territory. And on his way, he's interrupted by this Gentile but desperate mother. She's a Canaanite. She's a descendant of Israel's ancient enemies. Her people worshipped demons. Gods they called Baal and Malak. And they're famous, these people, for offering their children and babies to fire in worship of these idols. Deuteronomy 12.31 says, the Lord speaking about these people, he says, every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters to the fire, to their gods. And now this mother comes to the real God, not offering her daughter 
to demons, but to seek his help or deliverance from them for her daughter. I mean, who could imagine her pain and anguish? You moms and dads, to think about your child possessed. Demon possessed. Tormented. Crushed. Suffering without release. And she cries out to Jesus, crying out to him as the Jewish Messiah, recognizing him as the Jewish king. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, she says. And Jesus does something I've never seen him do. Whenever anyone, Jew or Gentile, asks him for help, he ignores her. But she keeps clamoring after him, so much so the disciples want Jesus to help her just to get her off their backs. Their, their appeal is send her away, for she keeps crying after us. And I think it doesn't, it's not super clear in that language, but I, I believe that what they're saying is fix her so she, we can get her out of our way because she's going to keep coming if you don't fix her. Just deal with this. And then he answers, but he doesn't talk to her. He talks to them. He says to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this, doesn't it just strike you as really cold? <laughs> I mean, it's cold to our ears. It was true in a sense. Sorry for the distraction. I just saw Hannah over there. I was just happy she's here. <laughs> um. As the son of David is the one who fulfilled all the promises made to Israel concerning her eternal king, Israel was Jesus' primary and exclusive mission field, almost. There were some forays into Gentile territory, but his focus was Israel for the three years that he was here on earth physically. And so he was telling her the truth. I am Israel's king, and I've come for Israel. He didn't want the gospel to stay in Israel, but his time, these are my people. These are the chosen people. I've been waiting to come for these people above all people. But the woman's undeterred, and now she moves in closer, and she throws herself down at his feet. Lord, help me. She's, she is like, I'm not going anywhere. She's throwing herself down. And Jesus, you'd think at this point he's going to, like he does so many other times, Jew and Gentile, just release his mercy on her. But, but he takes it up a notch. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's what he says to her the first time he talks to her. First he ignores her, rejects her for her pagan race. Now he compares her to a dog. It, it might mean pet or it might mean beast, but it's bad. She will not stop. And rather than contradict Jesus, she agrees with him. And then she adds, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off their master's table. It's a knockout. It's a home run. Game over. <laughs> Game seven. Soho. <laughs> she finished the fight. Jesus' response is emotional. In the Greek, it's clear he is overwhelmed, overcome. He's emotional. Oh, woman, he says. He expresses amazement and delight. He takes back his early rebuff, and immediately he says to her, Great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you desire. 
And Matthew ends the story with simple power, and her daughter was healed instantly. This is one, to me, this is one of the most perplexing stories in all the Bible. What is Jesus doing here? I, like I said before, I don't remember any time in the Bible, I cannot remember any time anybody comes to him for mercy, and he just refuses and refuses so long. And how does she keep doing this? Like, how does she hang in there? I would have a hard time hanging in if I really heard Jesus say, I've not come for you. I heard those words from his mouth. I've not come for you. I would, I would feel like I would collapse. It's the scariest thing I could ever imagine hearing. But I think Jesus is doing something beyond what we see in his words. And I hope through her, what happens in her heart, we'll, we'll answer this question in a compelling way by your grace. God, what, what is fuel for our spiritual strength? What is fuel for our spiritual strength? I want to draw out a couple of points and then some application. The first thing is, is what's really central in this story. It's not the most central thing, I don't think, but really important is this truth that God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. Jesus does something at first to this woman that fries our circuit board, right? This ignoring her, this putting her off. But what he's saying to her is, <laughs> you have no claim on me. You don't have any right to my help. This is a truth echoed throughout the Bible, that it is solely God's right to give mercy to whomever he chooses it, and it is his right to withhold mercy from whoever he chooses, and no one can force his hand. And maybe some of you, like me, are taken aback by those words and this whole idea of it being his right to give or withhold mercy. I mean, isn't God love? Isn't he loving? Isn't God infinite love? And isn't God the source of all love? Yes, he absolutely is, but he is also holy and pure, and he is also jealously righteous and just and fair. And so God's calling us here to humble ourselves and recognize mercy for what it is. It's mercy is, by its definition, not fair. It's undeserved. And to acknowledge that he does not owe us or this woman mercy. He, he only owes us, when we're talking about justice and what's deserved, God only owes us fairness. He only owes us justice. And what does the bar of God's justice say about us? What does it say throughout scripture about humanity? What is the history of humanity and all that we've seen for thousands of years say about humanity? It, it says that we are in ourselves, apart from his mercy, we are guilty before his holiness. That's what the bar of justice says to us apart from Jesus. We have murdered our fellow man, maybe only with our hearts in hatred and anger and despising and contempt. Man made in the image of God to be loved and cherished. We've committed adultery, maybe only in our hearts, with our eyes 
we've given ourselves to sexual immorality instead of the purity that he calls from us. We've stolen from family, from employees with our laziness. We've given into idolatry when we put our hope in money. Anything else as our peace and our joy more than God. We've judged and accused God and we've given into bitter grumbling and complaining. We've we've neglected Christ himself when we've neglected poor brothers and sisters. We've lived as hypocrites when we've asked for forgiveness from God, but withheld it from others. And listen, all of these things are our effects of our greatest problem, which is we failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. God is not in debt to us. We are in debt to him. And think about it this way, in the positive side, when we do, because we do, by his spirit, please him. We can, by his spirit, do things that please his hearts. Do you know that? When we do that, though, he doesn't suddenly then become in our debt. Here's one of the most humbling things that comes out of Jesus' mouth in Luke 17. Will any of you, I think I've got this up there, Can we move to the slide that starts, will any of you, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, this is is you guys, you have a servant, a worker for you, out there plowing, keeping sheep, say to him when he comes back from the fields, will any of you say to him, come on in and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? This is a 24-hour servant you've got. So don't think of it as a 9-to-5 worker. And Jesus is saying, if you've got that 24-hour servant, essentially a, a bond servant, like a, an indentured servant who lives with you, when he's done with the, the outdoor work, when he comes in, will you say, oh, now I'm going to be your servant? He says, no, you're going to say, be my servant till I eat, have my supper. When you're done with all that, I'll hit the sack, and you can take care of yourself. And then Jesus says, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And I think the truth that we take away from this is that any good thing we do is always by his enabling power. And it's only what we should have done as our duty anyway. God is owed our greatest love. He is only worthy of our love. Like, that's what's fairness. That's what's just, is for, our to love, is for us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It doesn't put us in the positive ledger sheet, and now God owes us because we've loved him well. He says, that was always your duty. That's what the universe owes me. I'm God. I'm the most glorious, loving being. I am infinite love personified, and you should treat infinite love with utmost honor and dignity and worship. That's your duty. The truth is we can never get on the side positive. We can never get the positive side on God's ledger sheet where he becomes suddenly in debt to us. He owes us nothing but justice. And if we knew ourselves as we should, we would see that the justice he owes us is punishment for our sins in eternal death. This is the testimony of scripture. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not Saying what's in my heart, I'm saying what's in his word. There is an unrighteous, not even one. 
Paul says this in Romans 3. This is the word of God, quoting from the Old Testament. And he means in ourselves, apart from Christ's work, right? Because you know what Christ has done, so many of you, in making you righteous in his sight and chosen and holy. And so because of this, mercy and grace is not something we can demand, but it's his to choose, to give or not to give. And to this woman, he appears at first to say, in justice, in my justice, with regard to you, I have chosen to minister mercy to the people of Israel, and I have chosen not to minister to you, the Canaanites. And doesn't this offend our ears? And it does offend my ears, and it does offend your ears. And if it does, it does because you have a wrong view of God. And I have a wrong view of God. We must let him be who he is. We must let him come to us as he is, not as we want to make him. We might think he owes us better doctrines. We might agree with what he says about purity and sexuality, but we don't like what he says about caring for the poor and giving our money away and forgiving our enemies. And that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. That stings. That's ouchy stuff. But I'm, I'm a virgin still, and I'm not a homosexual, and so I'm good. I like all those things in the Bible about that. I'm a good, great Christian. But this stuff about where my heart, where my treasure is, there my heart is, that, don't tell me how big my house can be or how many TVs I can own. Or, on the other side, we might love what he says about compassion and caring for the needy. We love that stuff. But we don't like what he says about sexual purity in marriage. Republicans and Democrats both have complaints for God. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give away my money to the poor. I work at the homeless shelter, but don't tell me who I can be intimate with. Don't get in that. Don't get in my business and my personal sexual life, what I can watch or what I can look at. I care about the earth. I care about the homeless. I care about fair trade. Don't get in my business about my bedroom. God doesn't owe us. He is who he is. He has a right to all of our lives. We don't have a right to tell him what to do. He is who he is. And that humbling truth is what you see in this woman. She gets that. She doesn't give up on her pleas and prayers, but she never attempts to refute or contradict or silence what Jesus says to her. She doesn't say, it's not fair. How could you treat Canaan like this? My family deserves better. A real Messiah would never say that. She doesn't say, dear Lord, you can't really mean that. That's not what you mean. The modern scholars have told us you mean this instead. The best critical theologians we have tell us that you didn't say that you won't say this to me. <laughs> no, she, she agrees with Jesus. She doesn't put up any kind of argument against what he's saying. She says, yes, Lord, accept the argument that fuels our strength. This brings us to our answer this morning, where the fuel for our strength comes from. We must put all our hope in God's good heart. We must put all our hope in God's good heart. 
not our performance, not our failures, not give up on him because we're not good enough for him, not demand from him because we have a right to him and he owes us. No, no, no. He, he's, he purifies this woman from all that stuff. And he says to her, woman, let it be about my good heart. Let it be about my generous heart. We must put all our hope in God's good heart. I can't think, as weird as this story is, as perplexing as this story is, I can't think of a more beautiful, hope-giving, and healing example to me than the Lord has left us in this woman. I think Jesus puts her off for a while so that you today who feel put off by God, who are tempted to give up hope, would look at her case and say, I have no cause to give up hope. Yes, God does not owe me, but look what overcomes his resistance in this story. This unworthy, non-covenant, non-apparently saved, non-Christian, woman who has no right to him overcomes him this woman from the people who worship demons whose daughter is demon possessed maybe it's her own fault that her daughter's demon possessed maybe they were playing with fire and finally got burned we don't know but she gets to the place where Jesus says to her you have nothing in me. And she says, I have nothing in you. But you're good, and I'm not going away. And he says, you got it. You got it. I am good, and I'm so glad you did not go away. She conquered him through faith in him. Despite all the discouragement, even from Jesus' own lips, look how she conquers she simply refused to give up on his good heart. She didn't say, look at my righteous deeds. Spurgeon says, our poor friend who was buffeted by our Lord's words, was secretly upheld by the sight of his person. Our poor friend, this woman, who was buffeted, pushed away by our Lord's words, was secretly upheld by the sight of his person. Beyond all the circumstances, even from his own heart, she could see, God, you're good. You're good. There's got to be an explanation here. There's got to be another answer besides, no, get away from me. No, I, I don't have, you don't have any right to me. There's got to be something else here. I know you're good. I know you care. I know you didn't come just for the Jews. I know I don't have a right to you, but you're good. And you care. So I can't go away. And that's my answer to the question this morning. What is fuel for our strength? It's faith in God's good heart. And let's look closely again at verse 25. Let's, let's look closely at, at some of the ways that this beguiling 
winsome, smart lady <laughs> dealt with Jesus. She comes and kneels before him saying, Lord, help me. He says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now watch, she affirms this truth. But then she does this sneaky thing. <laughs> For even, this is verse 27, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I like what Charles Spurgeon says again about this. He says, do not contradict a frowning truth of God. Do not contradict a frowning truth of God, but bring up a smiling one to meet it. Listen to that again, and I'll explain it. Do not contradict a frowning truth of God, but bring up a smiling one to meet it. She's saying essentially, yes, Lord, it's true. I have no claim to your help. But isn't Psalm 145, 8 through 9 also true? Doesn't it say in there? I know it says in Romans 9, Jacob I loved and Esau hated his mind to decide whom I will have mercy on. But doesn't it also say that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Doesn't it say the Lord is good to all? Doesn't it say your mercy is over all you have made? She didn't dispute the hard truth of sovereignty and election, but she took a refuge in a promise for her. And she said, I'm camping out in this promise because that's also true. remember being in college and being a new Christian and reading this crazy, for my eyes, this just so unsettling stuff in Romans 9, 10, 11. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I will have compassion. I will have compassion. Paul saying, what if God has compassion and mercy on who we will and he hardens who we will? It was just like, ah, I felt like Satan was saying, maybe God's not going to choose you. And it sent me down this road of despair and discouragement and, and I didn't know where to go. And the truth was, the book I was holding that was repelling me and freaking me out was the same place I needed to go. Because I needed to find Psalm 145. I don't know what it means, Lord, that, that not everyone is saved and some people go to hell. I don't know what to do with all that. It, and it's true. I'm not going to argue with it. But I know this. You have mercy on all you have made. And you so love the world. And that's the world. And, and so I got to hold them together. This is going to wreck me. It's true, but I, I can't survive on just this. So I got to survive over here also. She didn't dispute the hard truth. She found a promise to take refuge that was also true. And that's what we have to do. Maybe this morning you know you're displeasing God in some aspect of your life. You know his holiness. You know, he says, whatever a man reaps, that will he sow. You invest in sin, you will reap death and bondage. And you know you've been sowing to your flesh. You're feeling the chains of some sin that's wrapping itself around your heart. And you're reaping more and more the loss of freedom, tentacles of addiction. It might be to your phone. It might be to the illicit images. It might be to just laziness. And I don't know what it is, but you can tell your heart's becoming harder and harder and colder and colder. And you know you reap what you sow. But friend, your faith cannot survive alone on the diet of you reap what you sow. You will starve to death if your only diet is you reap what you sow. You need that hard truth. Yes, you need it. You need it to warn you this morning. But that truth on its own cannot free you. It can only kill you. And so you must deny that truth. You must not deny that truth, but you must flee somewhere else. You must flee to Hebrews 4, where Jesus says, I am a high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses. I know how hard this is for you. And I care about that. 
and where he says, in every respect, I have been tempted just like you, but I never sinned. I know how to get you out of this. And he says then, let us then with confidence, you put your confidence in me, not in you. Yes, you're a mess. I'm not a mess. So put your confidence in me and come to my throne of grace so that I can give you mercy and grace to find and help in time of need. Because I give that to people who put their hope in me and not despair only in themselves. So we face the stern truth that sobers us. We don't deny it, but we learn to let us drive us to a truth, another truth that gives us hope. Scripture does this often. The Lord says to Peter, Satan, Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat. He wants to damn you eternally. And that scares me. What a sobering truth that Satan's out there asking maybe God about me to take me out so that one day I give up on Jesus and I show myself to be a false believer. But in the very next breath, Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. What an overcoming hope that Jesus keeps us by his prayers. And we can say to Jesus, keep me by your prayer. And we can trust that he will do that. We hear Paul warning us, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you're having a great week with God. Watch out. Let's be sobered by that, but we dare not stop there. We must hear Paul go on and say, but God's faithful. Whatever temptation is going to come into your life, he doesn't want you to live a life of fear, always looking over your shoulder, always wondering when you're going to blow it and be destroyed. No, whatever temptation comes into your life, be sober, it's coming, but he is faithful. He will provide a way out of it if you will look at him and look to him. He will so that you can endure it. He knows what you can't bear. He'll provide the way of escape big enough for you. Maybe you're not sure where you are with the Lord this morning. You, you hear his words, the wages of sin is death. And you're starting to fear hopeless. And you're starting to fear hell. And Jesus would say, but don't stop there. There's no fuel for strength in that doom. You must go on to the very next words. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Free gift. So this is how we find our strength. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And it feels like the wall's up between us and Jesus. We're sobered by the truth that God owes us nothing and we need his mercy. We can't force him to save us or keep us. No one comes to me unless the father draws him. And then with the very next breath, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Don't deny the hard truth. Find a promise to take refuge in. And so Jesus answers her, your faith is great. You have not given up on my good heart. Be it done for you as you desire. Trial's over. Think about the people you love who are locked up, who are in prisons of sin or despair, unbelief. Maybe some of them are your own kids. 
And you want all this good for those people, these friends, these loved ones. This woman wasn't willing to let her daughter just be lost and locked up forever. She refused. She fought. She fought in a particular way. She refused to give up on God's good heart. That's what he's looking for more than anything from us this morning. That's what he is seeking from you in every trial he brings to you to not give up on his good heart, that you would cling to his good heart and to the promises that fuel that clinging. To look to him and say, you have what I need. Maybe it's not what I thought I needed, but you have it. Maybe like Paul last week, I think what I need is for you to take this thing away from me. And three times he prays, Paul prays, and, Paul, and, and God says, Paul, I love you, but you know what? That's not what you need. But I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what you need. If you let me be God, if you let me be God, I'll give you what you need. And I'm what you need. <laughs> and, and whatever, wherever, from wherever you're calling on me today, trial or blessing, I will be enough. Don't give up on my good heart. Do you want to last in the fight for your soul? You're not going to last by your performance. You're not going to last by keeping the commandments. I'm not saying commandments aren't important. They're important. But you're not going to last if, if that's where your focus is, that I'm going to perform and be, be good enough for God. Do you want to last and fight for your kids, or your loved ones, your husband or wife? You're not going to last through all of their rejections and all of their coldness and all of their hardness. Your own anger is going to be too much for you after a while, probably. You're going to last by accepting God as he is, the God who owes you nothing, but refusing to give up on his good heart. Refusing to give up on his good heart. So that's what he's wanting you to do and me to do this morning, to not give up on his good heart. A couple of more things and we'll close in prayer. We have something that this woman, as blessed as she became, Never had. God is your father. When you come to him like this woman, if you were in this story and it was your demon-possessed daughter and you came to him, he is bound to you. Through a covenant of his own blood, he is bound to you because you are his child now and he is your father. And he wouldn't say to you, I have come only for the lost sheep of Israel. It's not good to take what's for the children and give it to the dogs. He would say, you are my child. So when we come to God, we don't have to, we don't have to think that God is maybe going to be somebody who's going to be hard-pressed to want to love us, to want to stop in the middle of what he's doing and care for us. That's not who he is. 
I don't think it was who he was for this woman. I think he had a goal in mind with her heart to teach us this morning. But I do want to say to you, you are in a more privileged position than this woman started. You are his child. He is your father. And if he could be this overcome by faith, by this woman who, at the point of her entry anyway, wasn't his child, wasn't his covenant people, he said. I think she, I pray God, and I believe she's become his child. But, but if, if that was her point of entry, idol worshiping, not God's people, if that was her point of entry, and he said, I won't say no to you. If you keep holding on to my good heart, I won't turn you away. What's your point of entry? As his little boy. As his little girl. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, meaning, you know, we got sins. <laughs> we got corruption in our hearts still. If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, if you know how to do that, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You're his son, you're his daughter. That was so much of what I feel like was at the core of what Ryan and Holly were bringing us earlier today. You know, it's a burden on Jared's heart too. You're his son, you're his daughter. John Owen has these words for us. Let us then see the father is full of love. Do not see the father as one who is angry, but as one who is most kind and gentle. Let us see the father as one who from eternity has always had kind thoughts towards us. It is a complete misunderstanding of the father that makes us want to run away and hide from him. The father loses the company of his people because they're so ignorant of his love to them. His saints keep thinking only of his terrible majesty, his severity and greatness. So their hearts are not drawn to him in love. We must learn to think of his everlasting gentleness and compassion. We must remember his kind thoughts which have been from eternity. Let us remember how eager and willing he is to accept us. If we did this, we would not be able to bear one hour's absence from him. Instead, we find it difficult to spend even one hour with him. Let then this be the first thought that we have of the Father. Let this then be the first thought that we have of the Father, that he is full of eternal love to us. Now, if that doesn't come easy for you, you might need to do what I need to do. Which is to keep remembering the lamb who was slain. Because the devil and your own record and your own conscience might come and say, you have no right to him, you have no right to him, you have no right to him, you have no right to him. And then you got to look at the wounds on that lamb who was slain and say, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I have no right not to come to him. 
I said before, he owes us nothing. In that sense that I meant it, it's true. But in another sense, through Jesus Christ, <clears throat> he has chosen to bind his heart to our hearts forever. And through his own commitment and his own oath, he has sworn to never leave you or forsake you. And he has staked his own son's blood on that promise. So when you go to him and you're discouraged and you feel no right to him, you feel no reason why you should hear from him, receive from him, remember the blood of his son that he slaughtered, he crushed his own son so that you could know it is paid for. Your entrance fee is overwhelmingly paid for. I love you. You are mine. If I was willing to do that for you, what am I not going to do for you? And listen, listen, it may not be what you think, and it may not be when you think it. God doesn't, we saw that last week, right? He doesn't always say yes the way we want yes to be yes. He doesn't. But he always says yes the way we need yes to be yes. He always says yes the way we need yes to be yes. He does. Because he won't give you a snake or a stone. And that thing you think it's got to be bread. He knows better. And he might say, you know, that's a stone. If the outcome for you is knowing me better and loving me more deeply and glorifying me more, which is going to be more joyful eternally for you than anything, then I might, I might not be able to give you that thing you want. I might have to give you what feels like a stone. But son, daughter, you've got to trust my good heart. In the long run, it's bread. It's bread. Trust my good heart. Let me be God. But a lot of times, he's just so much kinder and so much more willing to get in the nook and cranny of our life than we, we give him credit for. Last week, I was having my family day. I wanted my family day to be special. I had a hope in God's good heart that it could be a special day. And so I had no ideas. I typically have very little energy or ideas on Monday. <laughs> and I, I was praying, God, I want today to be special for my kids, my family. I want to give them something. And the idea came in my head, fire pit. <laughs> Go get a fire pit, Albert. Have a fire, roast some marshmallows. That was the idea I felt like God gave me. That was at like four. Pick up my kids. We go to $5 pizza night at Zeno's. I'm looking about up fire pits on the phone, fire pits, fire pits, all this information about fire pits. There's a lot of information about fire pits. There's more information. And then there's more information. Then we went to Home Depot, and there were like seven, eight fire pits, ranging in prices from $165 to $350. There were cast iron ones. There were aluminum ones. There were clay, copper ones. There were a lot of fire pits. And then we went to Lowe's. <coughs> I went to the Lowe's guy. I was like, look, Amazon's got fire pits for $69. Everybody loves these fire pits. I look at these 3,000 reviews. They all love this fire pit, $69. Am I going to spend 
$200 on a fire pit because Marie really wants a fire pit today. And I've told her, let's do fire pit, but I got to spend $200. How many churches could I build in Africa for $200? So then I go to Lowe's. Maybe they got a better fire pit. I go to the Lowe's guy. He says, the fire pit's out in the garden center. If we got the fire pits, but we probably don't have any fire pits, but go out there because they take them. So I go out there with my three monkeys and we go out to the Lowe's garden center area and I'm looking and there's no fire pits. And my kids are like grabbing the, they're playing uh, lightsaber battles with the leaf blowers that we didn't pay for. And, you know, William's on top of one of the tractors. <coughs> it's like a real tractor that they use to move stuff. And I'm like, get off the tractor. I got to look at the phone. He gets off the tractor. And I'm looking at the phone and scrolling through fire pit information. My phone's got 2%. I'm not kidding. And I'm looking and I'm just freaking out. There's so many things and there's, look, it's 7.30 and it's getting dark. <coughs> William's back on the, the little thing again. He's up there, you know, doing his stuff. I'm like, get off the thing. And I, and I just lost it in my mind. I mean, I didn't, by God's grace, I didn't yell at my kids. Amazing. But um, I don't think I did. But, but I, I just, I was just like, man, like, look at my brain. Simple idea. God gave me at 4.30, get a fire pit beautiful idea. S 17 fire pit choices with all kinds of money, with all kinds of conscience implications, with Amazon waiting for me three days from now if I'll wait in the mail for a better fire pit. But no fire pit tonight. Marie's disappointed. She knows her dad's kind of crazy. So she's like, oh, my dad's crazy. I'm not going to get a fire pit tonight. And I just felt so weak. You know, I just stink at this. Like all these decisions that I got to make to do something just tender, and, and my brain just stinks at making quick decisions. I just stink at it. I do. I'm a bad, quick decision maker. And it affects everything. You know, it affects you. And I just despaired of myself, you know, of how bad I am at making decisions. And I'm walking out of the store, and I just hear God said, son, what are you doing? Why aren't we talking about this? Don't you know who I am? You preach to these people about grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. What are you doing right now? You just told them that in my weakness, in your weakness, I'm strong. What are you doing? So I, I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Throne of grace and mercy. Blood of Jesus. Door no one can shut. Access to God's throne. One by the blood of the lamb. I am coming. God, I, am a, I, I don't know what to do. Maybe I need strength to wait three days. And just look at Marie and just say, honey, we just got to wait. Don't always get what we want when we want it. Great lesson for Marie. Great lesson for me. But, but I don't know what he wants. I don't know what he's got up his sleeve. I don't know what it is, but I know I need help. And I know that I'm not pleasing him, despairing of myself and magnifying, and giving worship to my weaknesses living in sorrow simply because of my weaknesses in life. It's not the end. That's not what he wants. Despising myself and self-hate because of my weaknesses that are real. That's not what he wants. So what do we got, God? You got an answer here, right? Amen in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I open my eyes. I kid you not. I'm s literally, I I need to be careful. We'll go to the tape in heaven. But I feel like what happened was I walked out of the garden center and I walked into the area where they had stuff like like inside the garden. And I opened my eyes and there were fire pits right in front of me. 
that shouldn't have been there. They would have been stocked in the wrong aisle, not where the guy told me. I opened my eyes and there was a fire pit. And this fire pit <laughs> said $69. <laughs> and it, w- it looked like the exact fire pit I saw on Amazon that I was sure I was supposed to get so, so the churches in Africa could be built. <laughs> With the $200, I'll save it. And it was right there, and I just had to laugh. Like, it, it was just right there. You know, we got the fire pit, 70 bucks, some wood, some marshmallows. We stayed up till like 2 a.m., but we had fire pit night with marshmallows. I mean, it wasn't too, but we had a blast. It was just awesome. And we had some quiet time out there. We prayed together and thanked God for everything. It was just the sweetest day, sweetest night. Never, never would have experienced God's goodness if, if, if I wasn't weak and if I didn't not only experience my weakness, but believe in his good heart. That he's willing to get in to the dumbest nooks and crannies and care about my little family day in the fire pit at Lowe's. I mean, he cares, guys. He cares. He cares about it all. He loves you. He's your dad. You're his kid. And you can't give up on his good heart. You can't give up on his generous heart. Because I promise you, you will miss out on things that he has for you. You will miss them. You may still go to heaven, but you will miss out on all kinds of stuff in your life that he wants to do for you if you give up on his good, generous heart. You won't see it. You won't. But he's good. He has a generous heart. And so you know what? You will. You will, by God's grace, be convicted a little bit by this woman and her refusal to give up, and you walk out of here more inclined to hope into his, on his goodness heart. And even today, I pray, you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living in some way you didn't expect him to because of his word that never returns void. Amen? All right, well, let's go to him right now and pray. Lord, you are good. You are good. You are our Father. Your heart is good. We fail and you are good. We please you and you are good. We have a great week with you and you are generous to us and kind. We have a bad week with you and you are generous to us and kind. You don't change. And so, Lord, help us to more and more in our lives hang our hats on your goodness. Not on who we are and what we can bring to the table, but on you and your goodness through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.